Donald Trump can't leave the courtroom, so just to rub it in a little, Pod Save America is going on tour. He's probably asleep right now, but if he were conscious, he'd be so, so jealous. The Democracy Rails tour begins in Brooklyn on June 26th, followed by Boston on June 28th. Then we go to Madison, Phoenix, Ann Arbor, and Philly. See all the tour dates and get your tickets now at crooked.com slash events. What's up, DC? Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. And I'm Goldie Taylor. I'm John Lovett. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. Uh, We're very excited to have Goldie with us on stage tonight. And uh, Goldie's going to be doing a project with us at Crooked Media soon. Why don't you say a few words? Um, without telling you too much about it because, well, it is not out yet. I think most of the people in the room know, if you know anything about me, that I have been heavy into social justice reporting over the last decade at least. And I happen to have been reporting on a case that has gone back two decades. Um, we have found something egregiously wrong in that case. This is a serial-like, Atlanta monster-like investigation. Yeah. But you're going to be damn, damn, damn surprised as to who's culpable in making certain that a young black boy stayed in jail for two decades and why. And so that's what we're working on. Coming soon. Coming soon. Um, And later in the show, we're going to talk to the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, Washington Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal is here. First, we got some news. Uh, After another week where the Trump administration defied subpoenas and refused to cooperate with any congressional oversight whatsoever, Michigan's Justin Amash became the first Republican member of Congress to say that the president has crossed the threshold for impeachment. Uh, (laughs) Just the the low standards we have now. Just basic reading. We're applauding reading comprehension. That's <laughs> all we got, boo. That's all we got. Yeah, so Amaj came to the conclusion after reading Robert Mueller's full report, which clearly not many people in Congress did, um, and uh, which he also said that Attorney General William Barr deliberately misrepresented. He also wrote that, quote, our system of checks and balances relies on each branch's jealously guarding its powers and upholding its duties under our Constitution when loyalty to a political party or to an individual trumps loyalty to the Constitution, the rule of law, the foundation of liberty crumbles. Goldie, what's the significance of a Republican House member calling for Trump's impeachment? Does this change the political dynamic in any way? (laughs) Absolutely nothing. (laughs) Until we have a at least a, a portion, a critical mass of Senate Republicans. Right. Senate Republicans standing up to say, you know, we have got to do something about this president, that these are impeachable offenses that are worthy of a bill of indictment that brings to the Senate and whether or not we weigh a conviction. That until we get that on the table, 
I don't want to hear a damn thing these Republicans got to say about Donald Trump. It's just really, really hard for me to kind of put my arms around it. Yeah. I'm glad he said it, you know, but I just, I just, I just need some more. I need Mitch McConnell to say it. Yeah, um, not holding our breath for that one. Nah. Do you, um, do you think it puts a little more pressure on House Democrats to actually do something, the, the House Democrats who haven't yet come forward and, say, and, and to say that we need to uh, pursue impeachment proceedings? Nope. <laughs> 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 no, I, I, I do, and, and I, think, I think the problem here is, is frankly the same problem that Democrats had, you know, as they were weighing Nixon's um, impeachment. They were afraid. Yeah. They were afraid of public sentiment. They're afraid of the public fight. They're afraid that this puts our 2020 in jeopardy, that this puts, you know, the brand new House uh, leadership in jeopardy, that we may not get the Senate back, we may not win the White House. They're, they're running this long math. But I'm on the side of Liz Warren here. Fuck the math. <laughs> Do what's right. Yeah. And what's right is, is that this president is running a criminal enterprise out of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. And that unless we're willing to do and say something about it right now, what keeps anybody else, other than a certain black man in the White House, what keeps anybody else from being able to do the same thing? Right. Yeah. That's so right. That's, that's, that's a problem. So no, I, I don't expect them to stand up any harder, any stronger than they are right now because they're too busy running the math uh, when they ought to be you know, running the moral calculus yeah. about this thing. Um, so Dan, according to the New York Times, it does seem like maybe Pelosi is shifting a little bit. Um, she suggested on Thursday that House Democrats could possibly open an impeachment inquiry as a way to obtain documents and testimony from stonewalling Trump administration officials. Um, to me, it seems like this may be their only option aside from just giving up on congressional oversight altogether. Like, it seemed like for a while there was this middle road where Democrats wouldn't pursue impeachment right away, but they would hold all these investigations. Now it doesn't seem possible to hold these investigations because the Trump administration refuses to cooperate. So it seemed, are we in a place where it's just pursue impeachment or give up and move on? I, basically, I think we now are. Like, we've been debating, everyone has been debating the politics or how to think about impeachment when you know that the Senate is not gonna actually remove Donald Trump from office. Right. When you know that, how do you think about it? And as you point out, Pelosi proposed a road, which did make some sense, which is we are going to hold high profile hearings. We are going to pull on every thread in the Mueller report. We're gonna bring Bob Mueller, we're gonna bring Bill Barr, we're gonna bring Don McGinnon, we're gonna bring these people in, and we're gonna let the public know what was in the Mueller report. We're gonna sort of dramatize the Mueller report for the public and then make a decision on impeachment at the end of the road. But here we are, what, a month, six weeks after the Mueller report, and nothing has happened. Mueller's not come. Barr stiff-armed the House. We have not seen Trump's tax returns. We have Don McGahn is not there. No, nothing has happened. And so now, I think Democrats' hand, hand is really forced here because Trump is making them look weak. Yeah. Right? And so you, like, from a, there's a political perspective, which is now you're either, you're getting punked and everyone is seeing it. And that's a terrible position to be in politically. So I do think it changes the political calculus. But there's also another point here, which is not, Trump is not just stiffing them on the Mueller report. He has said that Congress has no authority to hold him accountable for anything. Anything. It, anything. <laughs> that, is, that is not just obstruction. That's not collusion. You can say you don't care about those issues in the past. It is family separation. It is financial conflicts we have in his tax returns. It's corruption in, throughout his administration. And when they say that, if Democrats have a responsibility 
to the Congress, to the Constitution, to, the, to themselves, and to the voters who gave them power to step up and do something. And Trump has closed off all paths other than impeachment, I think. Yeah. Love it. What do you think? That all seems right to me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I just have this image of the moment when, like, when Milhouse on The Simpsons really means business and he takes down the little nice flag from the back of his bicycle and rolls up the black flag with a little skeleton on it. <laughs> you know, you, you look at the... I, I'm, look, nothing would make me happier than to stand up here and say that, you know, the Democrats are being wimps, and surely they are. But uh, and to Dan's point, it's not that, that Trump is making Democrats look weak. It's that Democrats are making Democrats look weak. And then you look at the list of options for what they can do before they do impeachment, and it's like, well, sternly worded letters, we're doing that. Um, issuing, yeah. issuing subpoenas that are being used like when um, Sylvester Stallone starts cursing into that machine in Demolition Man to, to wipe his ass. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, uh, you know, they're going to unlock... One guy loved that He knows exactly <laughs> what I'm talking about. He's going to make uh, me lose my lashes really early. And then, <laughs> other than that, like Nancy Pelosi's joking about locking up uh, bar in the under the Capitol, but I can imagine how the media will treat that. They'll they'll do what they do. So I don't see a lot of great options for us. I'm in a dark place about it. Are we going to just see what happens? Levin said backstage his answer for everything that was going to be. You know what? We'll see how it all shakes out. We'll see how <laughs> time will tell. Time will tell. I will say there were a. <laughs> I will say there were people that were mad at Pelosi because Barr made a joke to Nancy Pelosi about. Uh, uh, oh, I got my hands here, you're going to put cuffs on me. And Nancy Pelosi said something sort of, you know, polite back, joking around. And people were like, how dare you joke around with this guy? And it's like, what do you want her to say? Like, try me, you fuck. What is she supposed to do? Give me a break. I um, don't know. Anyway, we'll see how it all shakes out. <laughs> I mean, Tommy, it seems that regardless of what Democrats do, the Trump administration is going to continue to investigate the investigators. Um, Barr said last week that under Obama's presidency, officials in the Department of Justice and the intelligence community, quote, abused their power to harm Trump's candidacy. And Trump himself called this treason and said that these officials should serve long jail sentences. Uh, how concerned should we be, <laughs> those of us that were in the Obama administration, uh, how, <laughs> how concerned should we be about Barr's counter-investigation here? I mean, pretty concerned. I, look, I think that it really sucks to think that we're all longing for the Not days of... Not individually concerned, generally concerned, right? Like, we up here... We the people. people. <laughs> I mean, I think America should be concerned. It, it sucks to long for the days of fucking Jeff Sessions, but you kind of do right now, <laughs> right? Like, Bill Barr is in on the, the fix. He's referring to lawful investigations with FISA warrants and, and you know, credible uh, counterintelligence investigations as spying. He's just asking questions about all these various issues. So, like, I think it's likely that Trump now has someone in charge of the DOJ that is willing to use it for purely political purposes, which is uh, a, a pretty uh, scary departure from the last couple decades of norms. So, you know, there's a chance that they use the Department of Justice to, or the intelligence community to investigate political enemies. But there's also a chance that, um, you know, even if we proceed with impeachment proceedings, that after those are over, they continue to stonewall any legitimate oversight anyway. Like, it's not a panacea. None of these options are great. None of these things fix our problem long term. We have to win an election in 2020. 
And I think, like, well, that's the only outcome. Bar to me、um, reminds me of like, any Black Mirror episode where there's a human being screaming inside of a, like, a teddy bear, and all the teddy bear produces is like, I love you. <laughs> In the sense that, like, when you see Bar on television and his glasses that make him seem sharp, and like, he's got, like, he's shaped like a serious person, and like, <laughs> And he sounds serious and contemplative, and, he's, and he is. He's sophisticated. He's a sophisticated actor. But you really need to imagine that there's a tiny Donald Trump just at those controls in there, just fucking screaming like the craziest Donald Trump shit that he can scream. And then it gets translated into the kind of language that's more effective. I'm never going to look at Build a Bear the same again. <laughs> <laughs> um, Sad Teddy Ruxpin, yeah. Think about it. Think about it. I mean, like you were saying, Dan, like, so much of this is, is focused on the Mueller report so far, but there's all these other abuses of power going on.、Uh, Goldie, Trump in the last couple of days has been getting pardon happy again.、Uh, on Wednesday, he pardoned his friend and former business partner, Conrad Black, who stole millions of dollars from his investors. And then the New York Times reported that Trump may pardon several American military members accused or convicted of war crimes, including murder and desecration of a corpse. I mean, should some of these pardons also be added to the articles of impeachment if, if we get to that? Well, first, the most important thing if I am ever in the shitter, then it's possible. I'm going to write a pitch to the pod、mm-hmm. that praises the shit out of Donald Trump. <laughs> If I'm ever on my way to Sing Sing, Leavenworth, any of that stuff, that is, that is going to be my get out of jail figure. Because <laughs> then you, then you, then you know. Because、uh, then you know <laughs> it could happen. He's pals. All you have to do is tweet something nice about tweet him. Tweet something Go on nice、Fox. about You know, you know that tweet that was going around that said, you know, if I have been kidnapped, this is what my social media will look like. You know, if I am under federal indictment, you will see me saying Trump is a wonderful motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there it is. The serious side is that he is not just pardoning friends. Conrad Black, you know, is in Trump's world viewed as a, a friend. People who do nice things for you for Trump are called friends.、Um, he's pardoning murderers. Yeah. And so when you look at, you know, what happened in. You know, all of those Navy SEALs came forward to turn in a guy who had not just killed in cold blood, you know, civilians in another country, but several, and kept going until they stopped him. Trump has called for his paper, shot a woman, you know, from a tree, you know, just flowing a job, it just blew her away for no other freaking reason. Then she wasn't quote unquote one of us. Yeah. Trump has asked for his paperwork to be sent to him for a Memorial Day style pardon. If that is not the most complete bastardization of Memorial Day short of drinking a six pack of Heineken, <laughs> I don't know, you know, what, you know, because you drink American beer. No,、Memorial、I never、Day. thought of the Heineken <laughs> thing. That Heineken thing just blew my fucking mind. I catch you drinking it. <laughs> If I catch you drinking anything other than Budweiser Memorial Day. You're drinking, Hei- <laughs> drinking Heineken in a BMW. <laughs> On Memorial Day. What are we even doing here? What have you been doing here with this world? Nazi sled. <laughs> 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 yeah. <laughs> no, but,、uh, but, but that's what we're at here is that he believes that issuing pardons like this will curry him favor among his base. And if that's the kind of thing that curries you favor among, you know, 
who you believe to be your base, one, you got to ask, who the fuck is my base? <laughs> and what do they believe in and why do I want them following me? Why are they happy with me? If they're happy with me, something must be wrong with me. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that, that. that wouldn't, I mean, that I wouldn't I, be true. I just want to, Goldie's point on this is really important because it, siding with these individuals accused of war crimes is not siding with the troops, right? Like no. other service members came forward because they were putting Afghan lives at risk. They were putting their own lives at risk. They shot civilians. Um, it is, like, I, I did not serve in the military. I worked with a ton of people that did in the NSC. There are people that believe in a code of conduct and honor and principle. You can get tossed out of West Point for lying before you get tossed out yep. um, for, you know, failing a test. And yeah. the notion that that is a pro-military decision is so fucked up. Or, like, to side with a bunch of guys who are in Blackwater, a private militia force run by his buddy, Eric Prince, uh, and to somehow see that as a... a pro-troop, despite the fact some of them might have were veterans, but that is not like being with the troops. It is just a truly sick, depraved to think about justice period in, in the world, in the country, anywhere. <clears throat> to take it back for a second, John, you raised the question of should, if an impeachment inquiry were to be opened, should it be expanded to other things? I think it is critically important that it does, because yeah. the the principle by which you open it is not just what was in the Mueller report. It's everything Trump has done since to stop, to basically say that Congress has no power, that you are a president above the Constitution. Like that's the, that's the premise for it. And then underneath it goes everything because it should be more than just a question of collusion or a question of obstruction. It's an opportunity to widen the aperture and have a conversation about all of the corruption, all the malfeasance from the crimes we know he committed by engaging in campaign finance fraud to the tax fraud in New York, to the corruption within his administration, to the emoluments clause, to getting rich, of everything else, to open it up so to say that we are not going to tell a story about a thing that happened in 2016 that everyone has decided their, what their opinions on are, even though that yeah. in and of itself should be an impeachable offense. We're going to have a conversation about why this president is too corrupt and too criminal to serve the American people. Right. And that's a conversation we can win. Yeah. Totally. And look, that is a political argument. It's also a moral argument as well. I mean, like, we, look, we know we're not going to get all these Republican votes in the Senate to convict him of anything, right? We know that the politics of impeachment are, at best, um, it, it's hard to tell what they're going to be, whether they're going to be favorable or not. But at some point, it seems like it is the right and moral thing to do to stand up so that when history looks back and we say, like, it is not okay, it is the wrong thing to do for a president to abuse his pardon power like that. It is the wrong thing to do for the president to use the Department of Justice to investigate his political enemies. It is the wrong thing to do for the president to make a whole bunch of money from the presidency, right? Yeah. Like, and it feels like if you are in public office, if you have been elected to serve, like you should go on the record <laughs> stating whether that's right or not. You know? and, like you are right, the politics of impeachment are up in the air. Right. But the politics of, politics of getting punked are very clear. And that's what it's going to look like to the American people if the Democrats can, get, can go nowhere on this for the next year and a half. Yeah, I said this. I, I said this the other day that if this had been, you hear this all the time, if this had been Barack Obama, is, uh, you guys have heard this? No, you haven't heard this, have you? So, but one of the things that, that I said, if this had been Barack Obama, not only would he be on house arrest awaiting transport to Leavenworth, first president in history that happened, but there would be a bipartisan parade cheering the line of paddy wagons. Y'all would be in them. <laughs> 
rolling down Pennsylvania Avenue because they're I don't think you need to assume that. <laughs> because <laughs> I think you could have made a perfectly good point without maligning us. <laughs> I think so you don't have us. smoky brows? Or are we along the side? Are we applauding? <laughs> are we in the paddy wagon? Oh, we're in the paddy wagon? Yeah, are we yeah, yeah. yeah no, we're oh. getting this. Oh, I'm, I'll be in the paddy wagon. I'm, <laughs> in, I'm into that. <laughs> we're not cheering. I thought we were cheering the paddy wagon. What are you talking about? In Maybe the love paddy it, wagon. Maybe Lovett loves to get out. Love is like, I was for Hillary. I don't know what you're Listen. But yeah, so, I've been so, telling so, you guys so, since 2007. Yeah. I've, said, I've said it before, I've said it again. I come from a long line of Jews that knew when to get the fuck out. <laughs> All right, more news after this. <laughs> Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com, and this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you, and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber-exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at cricket.com slash friends. And now it's time for OK Stop. We'll roll a clip and the panel can say OK Stop at any point to comment. Judge Janine Pirro. She's like Judge Judy, but instead of dinging people for not paying their dry cleaning bills, she's racist. <laughs> well, the Honorable Judge Pirro is predicting some more arrests soon, and surprise, it's the Democrats. This was wild. Take a look. This will be true reality TV. No scripts, no rehearsals, just a gang of criminals pointing fingers at each other to save their own hides. A version of true crime and the reality show Survivor. The deep state exposed. Okay, stop. 
Woo! <laughs> yeah. I feel like we just tuned into the middle of something. <laughs> she reminds me of my Aunt Florence, seriously. <laughs> the, uh, it's a lot. It's a lot. All right, let's keep rolling it. Now, I told you more than a year ago, former FBI director James Comey was the head of his own crime family and that he ran the upper echelon of the FBI like an organized criminal enterprise. Okay, stop. It's a very, that's a very intense previously on Josh Janine. It's like, a year ago, I said something completely insane. Because look, everyone on this stage gives James Comey an A-plus for every decision he's ever made. <laughs> you have to be so deep into this world to take that sentence, like, oh, James Comey, the six-foot-four moral guy. Well, also, just like, if he was the head of a crime family, uh, he didn't do a great job. Yeah, he's, he's, right? like, he's more Uncle Junior than Tony. <laughs> <laughs> like, the grand finale was uh, investigating Hillary Clinton, and, and then he <laughs> fired like an idiot. Yeah, he just got run out of there. That was limited to the upper echelon. The rank and file wouldn't have tolerated this. Even Bill Barr questioned it. Now, like any criminal okay, conspiracy... The Even Bill Barr? Even <laughs> Bill Barr. Have, have they lost Bill Barr? <laughs> Players are arrogant and they think they're above the law. But mistakes are always made. Comey tells the president... Okay, stop. First of all... Scooby-Doo over here. It's so weird. But I just love, like, they can't... Donald Trump, the fact that his psychology is so exposed, so on the surface, like, the nerve endings are just breaking through the skin. Everyone is projecting all the time now. Everyone. Every Republican on television is constantly describing Democrats in terms of the, their own side's crimes. Just again and again. Like, that is what we've been watching. Right. Trump literally runs a crime family. Don, <laughs> Eric, Tiffany. Don't back off, Tiffany. Ivanka. EA <laughs> is unverified, but he used it to spy on a presidential campaign. Yeah, I used the word spy. Okay, stop. She went there. <laughs> I like the idea also of Jeanine Pirro, who I believe three weeks ago, almost lost her job, and it's amazing to say almost, for just forgetting to, to put, like, an inch of foam between the racism and, like, what she was saying, right? She just came out and said that, like, Muslims can't be good Americans, and everyone's like, you're not supposed to say it that way. You're supposed to say it with, like, some nuance so they can get away with it. <laughs> and now she's like, I'm going to go there. Yeah. <laughs> Spying. <laughs> Now, I told you last week that Bill Barr was a cool cat. But okay, while the <laughs> That's the first term, time the term cool cat has been used to describe yeah. Bill Barr. Democrats hyperventilate and hysterically accuse him of everything they can think of and hold him in contempt. Barr remains lucid, focused, and unflappable. Okay, Rather. stop. Lucid. Fucking, again, with the low... Lucidity now. <laughs> uh, uh, just maintaining human consciousness. <laughs> 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 Being able to go in front of a committee having the quality of attention <laughs> and being 
in some sense in control of it, though we can argue about whether we're in control of our own attention and the nature of free will itself. Oh, man. <laughs> Let's not. Like these who use and abuse the enormous power that we give them are an embarrassment to all the hardworking men and women in the law enforcement and intelligence communities. But the biggest disappointment is yet to come. When the guy who has been so deadly silent on all of this will be the one that all the rats eventually point their dirty fingers at. Okay, and stop. That's my who? Now, we're so confused about we're, who she's talking about. Yeah, like, she takes one Mueller? second to be subtle and elliptical. We have no fucking clue what she's talking about. Mueller? Obama? Is, I thought Mueller? it was Obama. Obama? I think it's Obama. Brennan? Tune in next week and find out. <laughs> Ah, uh, another cliffhanger from Judge Janine. <laughs> <laughs> Earlier she showed a photo of Sam Power. So really? we're really stretching here. I would have gone to law school if I'd known it was this damn easy. <laughs> 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 I mean, it is just, let's just, it needs to be said that every weekend the President of the United States arranges his schedule around watching this. Yeah. And sometimes calls in. Yeah. Schedule. It really is like a, like a, just a, you know, 12th century boy king who's like, bring me my play. Bring me the play li I like. Bring me the woman who does this show that I like. I would like to watch the show with the woman I like. Bring the woman who says the things I like. Bring her to me. <laughs> anyway, Democrats should do way more Fox News. Yeah, really. yeah right. Um, yeah. <laughs> all right, let's talk about 2020. Um, on Saturday, former Vice President Joe Biden officially kicked off his third bid for the presidency with a speech in Philadelphia where he called for national unity and said the following, quote, they say Democrats are so angry, the angrier a candidate can be, the better chance he or she has to win the Democratic nomination. Well, I don't believe it, I really don't. If the American people want a president to add to our division, to demonize their opponents and spew hatred, they don't need me, they've got President Trump. I'm running to offer our country, Democrats, Republicans, and independents a different path. Um, Goldie, I saw you tweeting about Biden over the weekend. You said you don't believe his frontrunner status will last. Nope. Why do you think that? Well, I would be angry, Mr. Biden, if not for copious amounts of bullet and diet coke. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, th there's a thing, there's this Biden phenomenon. I know that everybody on this stage worked on a team once that helped Biden get to the White House as vice president. I think that is an incredible thing because I said, you know, in that series of tweets that two things put President Obama, or two things were part and parcel of putting him into the White House. One was winning Iowa and showing black people like me that an African-American man could win over white people was a real thing, that we knew that you would vote for him. If we knew that you would vote for him, that we could line up for him, we could organize for him, we could give him our money, uh, and we could believe. And so that really sort of made a huge difference. But the second thing he did was that he selected Biden, who had dwindled and fallen away, really, in the primaries, made him his running mate. And that said to white people, this young man is safe. And so there were two major decisions that he made. And so those two things are working together today, I think, and they fuel this front-runner status that um, Mr. Biden has, Vice President Biden has. I think that there is a older, more moderate, more you know, old DLC-leaning Democrat out there who wishes for the days of old. Um, that just isn't here anymore. And I think that's where his front runner status sits. But will it grow? Where does it grow? 
to progressives who are really freaking angry out here? Does it grow to them? No. Does it grow to the women who are looking around Alabama, Georgia, and Missouri and going, what the fuck just happened? Does he bring them in? No. Does he inspire, you know, the young uh, Afro-Latina girl in Brooklyn? Does he inspire, you know, the young Asian girl up here for highway in Atlanta? Does he? No. And so there is no place for him to grow. But once this fragmentation ends, you know, we got 22, 21 other candidates in this race. That fragmentation is going to end because people are going to start dropping because of lack of money, because of lack of organization, because of lack of poll numbers, because they can't get on the stage. Whatever the reason is, they're going to start dropping, and those numbers are going to start uh, pulling together under one, two, three tenths. Does Biden get any of that lack of fragmentation? No. He didn't get any of that vote. He stays with the same 20% that he has, so I don't think he ever makes it to 40% because of that. I like Biden. When I listen to him, he's mesmerizing. He paralyzes you when he's talking to you. You're the only person in the room when he's talking to you. But when you look at him on the issues over the years, then you know why President Obama selected him. When you look at his record over the years, it's hard for me to think that he's going to get out of the debate without Kamala Harris, without Elizabeth Warren, without Bernie Sanders taking it to him on his, serving his record, serving up his record for his own meal. And so I just don't think that the rest of what is today's Democratic Party will collapse and fold in behind him. I think he's going to have a harder, the, the longer he's in the race, the harder the road is, harder the road it is for him to hope. Um, Tommy, when, when he said he doesn't believe that an angrier candidate has a better chance to win the dom Democratic nomination, is he right? Um, I mean, I don't know. What I think he's doing is looking at some of the same polling that we've all probably seen in Iowa and New Hampshire that people actually, the, the message of bringing people together, being optimistic, being hopeful, actually does pretty well with a lot of those voters. And, you know, I'm not sure why he's like stiff arming the activists who are understandably really pissed off, but I, I, for some reason, you know, that's become the frame here. I'm not sure it's the best frame, but I do think it has some general election longevity. I do wonder what Goldie wonders as well, is what happens if you're the front runner and you're on stage and Bernie takes a shot at you over a rock and, and Senator Warren takes a whack at you over the bankruptcy bill and like how that series of attacks lands on him uh, and, and whether it diminishes him, whether it diminishes the person attacking more is, I think, an open question. But I do think people are going to come after him pretty quickly. In this, Let me in tell this you primary. what the crack is among older, yeah. older African-Americans, like my mother and aunts and stuff. When Kamala Harris gets on the stage and takes a shot at him over school segregation, the life that they lived, the buses that they waited for, the buses that never showed up, the schools they couldn't get to, when they crack open the full of, you know, that history, that's where, for me, that's where the crack happens. And that's stuff he frankly doesn't have an answer for. It'll be, it'll, it'll be worse than the answer he gave on Anita Hill. Here, I mean, here's what his answer should be, if he were to do it, which is, I've changed, I, you know, I've believed a lot of things in my life. I've grown and evolved over time. Everything you just brought up, Barack Obama looked at in 2008. He decided that he picked me, would pick me to be his closest advisor and one, one heartbeat away from the presidency. And I'm going to say, how come he endorsed you this time? 
I mean, that's your response, right? <laughs> that is. Oh, wow. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> but I, like, to, to Goldie's point, like, there are a couple of things about this. One is, there are 22 candidates, but 85% of the vote is in like six people. Yeah. And those six people have the ability to make it all the way to the end. Yeah. So if those people want to beat Biden, they got to take votes from Biden. Right? He's not, I do not think, for Biden, who sometimes made political and verbal missteps in his life, but I don't think he's going to beat himself. The, there is a personal, a very deep well of affection for him among Democrats. His association with a president with a 95% approval rating is too close. And, and this is, people believe right now, based on very little, but believe that he's the most electable person. So you're going to have to change that perception to beat him. Yeah, and I think, I think the angry thing too, because I saw some people saying, you know, why is he denying that so many people are angry? And he actually didn't do that. He, he recognized that people are angry, but he's saying, I don't think an angry candidate is what we need to win. And I do think that's tapping into, there's a ton, most Democrats, I don't know any Democrats who aren't, are very fucking angry right now. <laughs> and I think the question is, are people tired of being angry? <laughs> and do they want to just, I, wanna, I don't want to be angry anymore, and I'm sick of politics as perpetual warfare. Now, I'm not tired yet. I don't know about this audience. I'm, 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 I'm not tired of being angry yet. <laughs> you know, if somebody passes a heartbeat bill in Georgia, you know, uh, you know, a, a gang of angry white men passes heartbeat bill because, you know, I don't know, they're not getting any on Friday night. I don't know what's going on with it. But I'm not, ang I'm not through being angry yet when they're still pulling crap like that, yeah. you know, and marginalizing and erasing my life and my body. I'm not through being angry yet. And I think that... There, are, there is a brand of Democrats out there who has underestimated that level of anger and underestimated our willingness, our ability to turn them out yeah. because they didn't reflect that. Yeah. I, I think it's important that anger and hope and anger and inspiration are not mutually exclusive. There right. you have it. Yeah, Barack Obama's 2008 campaign was about hope, but it was fueled by an anger about a terrible mistakes to go in Iraq about a financial system that was totally Yeah, Democrats up. were really angry then. Yes. Yeah. And so the question is, can you turn that anger into something positive? Yeah, yeah it's, it's, that's, that was my problem with what he said. It's, it's punditry, and I think it is a little bit patronizing to equate being angry with the kind of politics that right-wing anger has stoked, which is hateful and bigoted and mean-spirited and, and venal and wrong. There's righteous anger. We have righteous anger. And, and you know, to, to, to Goldie's point, like, where does he get these other votes from? I think it's hard, but I don't think we know. But one thing that's clear to me is if he wants to be the candidate that wins this nomination, he's not going to get it by telling people that they're wrong about their feelings because no one ever gets anything telling anyone they're wrong about their feelings. Um, ever. Just literally ever in any circumstance. So, you know, I think... It's about explaining to people what they can do with their anger and why their anger is justified and speaking to it. And, you know, we've talked about this, that, you know, there's a big age divide right now in the sport that Biden has. And that makes sense. You know, he's appealing to people uh, that are a bit older. Some, you know, people like Bernie and Warren and Kamala maybe are p appealing to people right now who are younger. And whether they uh, go to him because he's the nominee and who won with older voters or they come to him before the nomination fight is over, he needs to find a way to talk to those young people, those young people who not only who need, not only who have to vote for him, but also have to knock on doors for him and care about him and want him to win. And I actually do think that's possible. And I, I don't think there's anything to stop him from bringing out how to speak to those people. And honestly, 
Goldie may not be tired of being angry, but I'm fully exhausted. And, and, so, <laughs> and so to me, it's, it's, it's frustrating because uh, the test that I've always had in my mind for Biden is he going to understand this moment and understand how he has to bridge this assumption around his electability with the genuine passion and beliefs and kind of place that the Democratic bases and Democratic young people are in. And right now, I don't think he's doing that, but that doesn't mean he can't. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the other big thing here is whether or not we can debate whether Democrats are tired of being angry or not, or tired of being divided or not, but what it doesn't change is how Republican politicians are acting and will act no matter who wins the presidency. I mean, Biden said earlier this week that if Democrats win in 2020, Republicans will have an epiphany and start working with them again. I mean, is there, is there any evidence? They had <laughs> any the epiphany. At all they had the epiphany. Happen? The epiphany was, we don't have to work with these people at all. They had it. It was, it was yeah. and, and Joe Biden was the vice president when they had it. So, and just one other thing about this too, is I think that there's part of this electability thing is, you know, we just need someone who's going to get us there, right? Like, he can get us there. Like, we just want to win. We're so desperate. We're so sick of what's happened. We're so desperate. We just want someone who's going to get us there. I want to vote for him if he wins the nomination. There's oh, no question about that. Absolutely. Uh, I, and, and, there, there just is what it is. But you know what the most salient question yeah. is? Who looks better in a pair of aviators than, than Joe Biden? <laughs> no one. Nobody. That, Nobody. Is, that is an easy one to answer. No, he, <laughs> he does look good in a pair of aviators. But, but all I was going to say is just that I think part of the problem we're having is because we haven't internalized enough just how effective the Republican turnout machine was in 2018, it's like one of the biggest untold stories of that election, all of our passion, all of our energy, it's really going to matter and, it's gonna, and we're going to win at the margins. We can't just hope that someone's going to be enough. They have to excite us and they have to get us there. And he can do that, but it's not going to be by telling people that being angry isn't right, I guess. Yeah. I think, I mean, to your point, love it. Electability is a lot of what is it, what people are thinking about, it's what they're looking for. We have no idea what it is, but it's something we want. But it is what is propping up Biden, and it is based in racial and gender stereotypes about what an electable person is. It's based in his association with someone who won two presidential elections. But I think if you were one of the candidates who want to beat Biden, the way to do it is to run at his electability. Mm -hmm. which is to make the point, which is not to say he makes gaffes or do you really want people running this 1972 clip on YouTube? Like, that's not it. It is to make a case that the best Democratic nominee is not someone who's been part of our, the broken political system that gave us Trump since the Vietnam War. It is not to have a campaign that it's a debate between two different versions of the past. It is a campaign where it is, where it is made between Trump is the past and Democrats are the future. And there are a handful of Democrats who I think can make that case. Yeah. But they have to make it. They just can't wait around for Biden to make a gaffe for people just to change their minds because that is the exact strategy that the Republicans had in 2016. Time and will I tell. Think, Time will tell. And <laughs> I think you have to. <laughs> and I think if you're a Democrat making that case, you have to understand how much goodwill Biden has in the party, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. I always thought that and Mitt Romney didn't keep this argument for very long in 2012, but one of the arguments <laughs> Mitt Romney made that was the scariest to me was when he said, I understand why people were excited Barack, by Barack Obama. I wanted him to succeed too. He's a good man, yeah. but you know what? He just failed and he didn't do it. And I think if you're a Democrat running at Biden, you have to understand that he has so much goodwill out there that you have to start by you know, saying all those good things about him saying, but as you said, we need something new. 
especially this when there's just past for future. Especially when the first state is Iowa, and and being someone's second choice in Iowa is a very meaningful thing because of the way yes. the caucuses work. If your first choice isn't viable, you go to your second choice. And if you are the first person to attack Joe Biden, Uncle Joe, the popular former vice president, there's a lot of risk there. So there is this dilemma that these candidates are in. It's like, who's going to shoot first? And, and I don't know that they and know. And how are they going to do it, yeah. right? Yeah. Because there's drawing a contrast in a way that is substantive, yep. that voters don't mind, and then there's taking cheap shots. Yeah. Well, then there's, this, is, this is the chaos of having 25 candidates, because maybe it's up to, they're, yeah, they're the first six who are playing that game, but there's somebody at 9, 10, 11, 12 who's like, I don't care. I'm going to get in this fucking headline. <laughs> uh, when we come back, we'll have an interview with Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference... Sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com, and this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the friend of the pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com store to shop. Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you, and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber-exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at cricket.com slash friends. She's the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus and a representative from Washington State. Please welcome Congresswoman Jayapal. Well, thank you for being here on not just any Sunday night, but the finale of Game of Thrones night. <laughs> you're doing a screening of it, right, for everybody. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Everyone here has HBO Go. It's fine. They'll see it when they get home. Um, we have a lot of, there's a lot of bad news happening in the world, but before we get to that, I want to start with some good news. This past week, the Democrats in the House passed a 
historic piece of civil rights legislation for the LGBTQ community. Can you tell us about that bill and where it's going from here? It was amazing and it really shows that majorities matter. Um, this was the Equality Act and um, it was such an incredible moment. This is basically the act that says that we're going to ensure that everyone has the same rights, whether it's in housing or employment, any field. But if you are LGBTQ, you get protections against discrimination. You get the same rights that everybody else does. And it was fabulous to pass it off the floor. Is there, are there prospects in the near future for the Senate to take it up? Well, we. <laughs> well, I mean, in the like in the pat, like I recognize that Mitch McConnell is the terrible. Grim Reaper. He's the Grim Reaper, which he self-identifies as, which is says a lot. But there, you know, there has been bipartisan support around some measures around hate crimes. Don't ask, don't tell. In the past, and I don't know if whether the, there are some Republican co-sponsors in the Senate or others who could help at least begin to move the ball forward. There were eight Republicans that voted with us in the House. Um, and so, yeah, that was good. But, you know, I thought we'd have more, honestly. I mean, come on, people. I mean, like... really, it just felt like we are in a different... I, the, the Judiciary Committee hearings were crazy because all these Republicans suddenly cared about women in sports. That was, <laughs> that was the thing they really cared about. And they were so afraid that transgender people were somehow going to take away the ability for women to compete in sports. Yeah. Um, so I guess the short answer is... I don't see it, but I think that the movement has built so much that I think anything is possible. And I think it's all about what do people do in the districts, in the states, how do they organize, um, and, and how do they continue, how does our movement continue to make this a priority? I mean, it's an important point for all of our, everyone here tonight and our listeners out there that you can call your senator, especially if you live in a state with a Republican senator, and let them know how important it is that they take this up, because that is actually how we've gotten Republicans in the limited instances it's happened to, to make, to move on uh, issues of importance in this community. That's right. And, and the log cabin Republicans, I mean, there are a lot of Republicans who believe that civil rights protections should apply to everybody. And more and more people today have people that they know that they're directly related to that are in the LGBTQ uh, community. And they do want to provide those protections. I think that there's, you know, there's a lot of fear mongering as there is with anything else. But if anything is going to pass, I feel like this and hopefully the DREAM Act um, might be two of those things that could find bipartisan support in the Senate. I mean, as a side note, it's just fucking wild that in 2019, only eight Republicans thought the LGBTQ community should have basic civil rights. I think it's less than it used to be, and I don't think it reflects where people actually are. I think it's where they think they are supposed to be for politics, which is so cowardly and horrible and really difficult yeah. to watch. Yeah. You know, this past week, you know, we've been watching state after state, um, Republican-led states, you know, taking up bills to ban abortion, even in cases of rape and incest. Is there something the Democratic House can do? Can the House pass a federal law? I think Elizabeth Warren and a couple others have proposed this. Would, would, you, would you think the Democratic Caucus can and should pass a federal law to enshrine, enshrine the, the rights of Roe v. Wade into law? Well, here's the thing about um, choice is we already have a constitutional right. It's been, it has been affirmed by the Supreme Court. We shouldn't need to pass another law, but... Um, Would it help to do so? At, 
at this moment, given what the administration is doing and given what states are doing, you know, as they stack the Supreme Court and then also as these states basically are making a ploy to send one of these cases up to the Supreme Court um, and overturn Roe v. Wade. And so, yes, I think that would be a really good preemptive step to take. I just think it's so crazy. You look at Alabama, it's 49 out of 50 in terms of infant mortality. Nine babies out of a thousand in Alabama die. That is the, that is an unbelievably high rate. And yet they don't want to have Medicaid expansion that would save those babies' lives. And they want to get in our business and tell women that we don't have the right to do what we can with our own bodies. I'm getting the sense that when they say they're pro-life, it doesn't mean what they think it means. It really doesn't, because I tweeted, you know, oh, we just found out that 1,700 children, in addition to the 3,000 from before that we knew about, were separated from their families. So you don't want to provide Medicaid expansion. You're perfectly happy to separate children from their families, but somehow your poor life, um, that seems like the ultimate hypocrisy to me. But here's the other thing. I, <laughs> I was... I was also saying this morning, I was on um, CNN State of the Union, and I was saying to um, Rick Santorum, I said, so... so <laughs> that is the exact opposite of a name drop. So, if, I was like, okay, so if conception starts at, at this early age, does that mean while you're in the womb, does that mean that child support starts then? And if that baby is, you know... In the, in the stomach, in the womb of an undocumented immigrant, you can't deport that undocumented immigrant because that baby is a citizen already. So we should keep them all here. Did Rick Sandworm just melt at that point? He, he said he was happy to provide child support early. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't seem to be with me on the undocumented immigrant front. Yeah, I'm shocked by that. You know, you're... The Democratic caucus, the Democratic majority in the House, has, you know, was elected with this promise to return accountability to Washington, to, hold, to you know, put forward the checks and balances of the Constitution. And now you have this administration, this president, saying, no, like, we're, not, we're not providing witnesses, we're not providing documents, your subpoenas mean nothing. What... What is the appropriate res- what do you think the appropriate response is to what is a pretty unprecedented level of um, essentially declaring it's oneself above the Constitution? I really believe we are now at the point where we have to start an impeachment inquiry right? and I, I don't I don't say that lightly. I mean, I think we have taken every possible step that we can. We've issued subpoenas. We've called for witnesses. The president has issued blanket executive privilege over the Mueller report. He has refused to, he has said, I'm not providing, you know, meeting any of your subpoena requests. I'm not providing any of the witnesses. We'll see what happens. We're supposed to have Don McGahn in front of us on Tuesday. Let's see if he really comes. Let's see if Mueller really comes. But, you know, when you have a president that says, I'm not going to respect the authority of a co-equal branch, and really we're first because we're Article One. <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying. Um, then I think that is the difference between a dictatorship and a democracy. If you, if you have a president who thinks he's king and isn't accountable to anybody and is above the law, that is not 
That is absolutely not acceptable, and it matters to the pocketbooks and the lives of everyday Americans. It's not, I don't think it's something that's out there. You know, it means that if he strips healthcare away from people, does unlawful things, uses the office of the presidency to get in all kinds of bribes from foreign governments, it means there's no accountability over him at all. And it means that Americans will suffer. And so it is a serious undermining of our constitutional foundations. And I don't take it lightly, but I do think we are at that point. You know, there has been, even though there has been a general consensus among a lot of Democrats um, in the House and across the country that the Mueller report is pretty clear, and in some cases you didn't need the Mueller report to, to know it, but that Trump had committed impeachable offenses. But yet still there has been a hesitancy among a lot of Democrats in the House from the leadership on down to go down this path. Has that changed in the month or so since the Mueller report came out? I think so. I think it's changed in the last couple of weeks because we are seeing a White House that is just denying any cooperation, any accountability at all. And I think people do realize how serious that is and understand that I'm not saying we're taking a vote to impeach or not impeach. I'm saying let's start the impeachment inquiry because in doing that officially, we have way more leverage in the courts to try to get some of what we want. And let's see where that gets us. But, you know, this is quickly leading us down a road that I think I don't want to wake up in 20 years and think, what did I do um, to stop this, you know, stop this tyranny from taking over our democracy? I mean, one of the, the challenges to start an impeachment inquiry is you can start it, but they usually end somewhere, right? They, like... Either you vote to impeach the president and succeed and send it to the Senate, which we, everyone sort of knows that's going to happen. You vote and don't impeach the president, or you don't vote, which I think is interpreted as get letting the president off. Does it make you nervous to begin the process knowing that there is not yet a majority in the House who believes the president should be impeached? Everything makes me nervous, but the thing that makes me most nervous is is that we are undermining our democracy. We are watching the execution of our democracy, to use really tough words. And so I don't think, I mean, I think that we do have to lay out a case to the American people. There's still information we don't know. I I mentioned to you before uh, before the show that you know, I'm now on my third read of the Mueller report, and it is actually really fascinating um, and terrifying if you read the whole thing. The case that is laid out in there is very clear. He is very clear in the report, Mueller, that he is sending this to Congress for us to act on it. And it is also very clear that William Barr should not be the Attorney General of the United States. He should resign. Any... Do you have any sense of when we might hear from Robert Mueller himself? You know, we had hoped that um, we would have him in by this week, and it has been delayed in part because the president tweeted that he didn't want Robert Mueller to come and testify. And so there are questions about whether he is going to come and under what conditions and what he can say. Same situation we're facing with Don McGahn. Um, So I don't think I saw that the chairman had said that it probably wouldn't be until next month. Um, And I just think this is all getting dragged out. And that's also part of Trump's strategy. But the constant, it's not, obstruction isn't just something that happened in the past, by the way. It is ongoing obstruction of justice that we are witnessing. 
you are one of the leading advocates in the House for Medicare for All. You are the lead sponsor of the House Medicare for All bill. You held a very high profile hearing uh, very recently. Um, Medicare for All has obviously been a very important part of the debate in the Democratic primary. Based on Trump's Twitter feed and Fox News, which are the same thing essentially, um, the Republicans wanted to be part of the debate in the general election. How would you sell a, so let's hypothetically say I'm a voter in Wisconsin. I don't love my private insurance that I get from my employer, but I'm nervous about losing that and having the government, which I have some skepticism, take over. How do you sell Medicare for All to that voter who's open to the idea but afraid? Yeah, the first thing I would just say is here's what you get from it. Here's what you get. You get comprehensive care. You get all the health care you need before you get sick. You get preventive care. You get mental health, dental, vision. Um, you get your prescription drugs cut down so you can actually fill your prescriptions instead of not filling your prescriptions or cutting your pills. And you will not have to pay any copays, premiums, or deductibles. And by the way, there will be no out-of-network hospital or doctor. You keep the same doctor and hospital that you have, but in fact, you, everyone is in network under Medicare for All, and it's the existing system. And, um, and I think when I say that, most people say, is that possible? And I say, yeah, not just possible, but necessary. Every other industrialized country in the world has done this except for the United States of America. And then sometimes I ask them, so how much do you pay for your copays, premiums, and deductibles? And they tell me some story, and I, this has happened on the doors in rural areas and places that are not like my progressive, you know, I'm from Seattle, um, my progressive district, but um, people will say to me these unbelievable stories. I had to, um, you know, I had to go into bankruptcy. I had to not get married because I had to lower the threshold that I could qualify for. Um, and, you know, all the things that people do, I mean, GoFundMe has some amazing uh, uses, but being the primary health insurance plan for people is not what GoFundMe was set up for, and it should not be the case. Well, you sold me, so that worked. <laughs> you heard it here, Dan Fiverr, on Medicare I mean, for All. I, I was there already, <laughs> but in my hypothetical role-playing of Wisconsin voter, I'm on board now. Um, thank you so much for being here tonight. Please give it up for Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal. Thank you so much. You guys want to play a game? D.C., Maryland, Virginia. You call yourselves the DMV, which makes sense because like the DMV, you're boring, bureaucratic, and most of all, everyone inside wants to get out as soon as fucking possible. <laughs> you know what? I deserve to be booed. I'm booing inside because we met a bunch of very passionate young people who are working to flip the state of Virginia before this show from George Mason and elsewhere. And they're very cool. And I still do the fucking joke. <laughs> Anything for humor, right? Anything. <laughs> But because D.C. and Maryland are usually reliably blue, we want to focus on you inconsistent monsters in the state of Virginia. 
And yes, I said state. There's only one Commonwealth I recognize, and it's the one where Tom Brady kisses his son on the mouth every morning. <laughs> Boo, fuck you. <laughs> what are you booing? Never know. Virginia has, some remar- <laughs> Virginia has some remarkably important local elections coming up in 2019. Because of the census, the winners in this election will draw districts that could impact who represents Virginia in Congress for a decade or more. But here's the thing. When it comes to local elections, we Democrats... What's the word? Suck. <laughs> I don't know how you, could, how you guys got ahead of me on that. <laughs> we don't turn out, even though in many cases, local elections have huge impacts on our lives. What's happening in Alabama and other states right now is a testament to that. We get it. National politics is flashy. It's sexy. Bernie, Rosenstein, McConnell, hotties. But we are going to train Virginians to pay attention to local elections in a game we're calling, Hey Virginia, our eyes are down here in local politics where a bunch of right-wing goons are going to gerrymander the fuck out of your state if you don't show up. Our eyes are down here. Would someone out there like to play the game? And I would like someone from Virginia. Why are multiple people showing up? What the fuck's happening? <laughs> Hi, what are your names? My name's Jeremy. This is my brand new wife, Marissa. Hi. Oh. Wait, See, what's, what's you your name? Together, they have t-shirts. Marissa. Jeremy and Marissa. Yeah. And matching Pod Save the tour, Pod Tours shirts. Yes. We, oh my gosh. we got married yesterday in our home area of Youngstown, Ohio. We drove back specifically for this show, and we're flying out of Dulles tomorrow for our honeymoon. <laughs> Wow. wow! Look at that. That's so nice. Congratulations. <laughs> but are, are you from Virginia? Yeah, we, we live we here. Live in okay. <laughs> yes. The roller coaster. I mean, it's a very, it's a sweet story, but I thought it might have been to get away with something. <laughs> Jeremy and Marissa. Yes. All right. Here's how this game is going to work, and it's a tough one. Okay. I'm going to read you information about gerrymandering, okay? But while, and that's important to local elections, right? But as I do, our panel, they're gonna try to distract you with national news, okay? (laughs) And at the end of it, I'm gonna quiz you. Yeah, yeah, honeymoon's over. Uh, (laughs) Are you ready? Yes. Yeah. (laughs) John will be your first distractor. Every 10 years, the U.S. Census is used to apportion seats in Congress. Hey, Trump just tweeted. 2020 tweeted. is a census year, which means the people we elect to state legislatures will get to redraw over 75% of congressional Hey, Trump just retweeted a meme video of him doing the piano dance from in Big. In other words, they'll have an opportunity to gerrymander, and we'll have to live with the consequences. Turns out the guy who made the meme is a convicted terrorist. For, a, <laughs> for at least another 10 years. Question. Hey, Trump tweeted again, and this time he spelled Iran using an E instead of an I. Iran. <laughs> Iran, he tweeted. <laughs> the people we elect to state legislatures in 2020 will get to redraw what percentage... Oh my God, Trump is tweeting about Detective Pikachu We're and it's clear he thinks it's a documentary. <laughs> <laughs> We're at the... I'm already in the question. Unbelievable. Now you're distracted. <laughs> in 2020, the people we elect to state legislatures will get to redraw what percentage of congressional district boundaries. Trump was trying to Google, but he accidentally tweeted the words two girls, one cup, extended cut. (laughs) 
It's everywhere on Twitter. Everyone's talking about it. <laughs> That's coming out. All right, honeymooners. <laughs> 75%. You got it. Question I love two. interrupting Love It. That's fun. It's fun. It's really fun. We should play this game. It turns out yelling jokes over people is fun. Yeah, you do. You've made, you've made a good career. Yeah. Out of that. You can fill a place. All right. <laughs> Question two. Jeremy. Marissa. So far, is this game bringing you closer together? A hundred percent. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Let's see if we can change that. Goldie will be your distractor. The 2018 blue wave was subdued, thanks to gerrymandering. You got me still. <laughs> You're supposed to distract them. Yeah, 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 yeah. They don't know nothing yet. Come on. <laughs> Democrats won the popular vote over oh, nine points. Oh, did you see points. CNN? Bernie said they're doing a <laughs> town the hall that he admired Mark Shirley, but I think he merely was smaller than in the past. Did you see that? It was widely reported that Democrats hey, hey, hey. got over 300,000 more votes statewide in Virginia, but they still could not win a majority of seats in the statehouse. Did you see that? In 2018 midterm elections, Democrats Turn on won the national popular vote a three-hour panel special with by all men, how of course, many about whether or not Omar was anti-Semitic when she used the phrase, I like music. <laughs> how many points? National election? Democrats won the national popular vote by how many points? This is the problem. This is the problem. It's all about timing. Nine percent. All about timing. <laughs> I may not have said it. Thank <laughs> 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 you, Unbelievable. I got a little distracted Never myself. The game hey, hey, you know what? Politics isn't fair. Lesson. <laughs> <laughs> if politics was fair, I'd be writing for the new Roseanne nobody cared about. Because Trump wouldn't be, you get it. All right. And none of this doesn't matter. Three, Tommy is the distractor. Racist gerrymandering disenfranchises hey, black voters. Mayor Peep just burnt the alphabet in Norwegian. <laughs> in one case, a district boundary hey, was drawn between Megan McCain just North lectured Carolina someone about AMT. That actually happened. To split the students, hey, 10,000 votes get in, loser. We're going sex strike. In Virginia, court determined that race sex was the We're primary going down on consideration the between 11 hey, different district maps. Doing Question. a sex strike. What? what was the name of the college in North Carolina where Republicans drew a district boundary between dormitories? Ante. Ante. Yeah, what Ante. he said. Yeah. I just heard Tommy Vitor guys, saying sex strikes. So. You guys got it. <laughs> yeah is such a funny answer. <laughs> Someone yelling behind you. You had me a sex strike. <laughs> sex strike. RT if you agree. RT to sex strike. Did you get it? I know they did. Shut up. <laughs> Question four. Dan, with, who looks truly horrified, <laughs> will be your distractor. Gerrymandering has helped make the Republican hey, Party more extreme. Hey, insane story? This is thanks Taylor to hacking. Karen Pence shows on Anderson Cooper the that Mike Pence sleeps with his eyes open. boundaries to exclude people likely Jared to vote Kershaw for the other party. Spotted a representative in a purple district would need first. to have more moderate views, but in a deep red district, OMG, the, the election are turning the P-tape into a one-act play. The 
What can we do to stop this? <laughs> Vote in 2020? <laughs> you got it. Here's the real answer. Crooked is teaming up with Data for Progress to launch a fund to help end gerrymandering once and for all, and we're calling it Fuck Jerry. Mandering. Mandering. <laughs> I like it. It's called Fuck Jerry. Mandering. It's called Fuck Jerry. Mandering. It's called Fuck Jerry. Mandering. It's called Fuck Jerry. Firefest. Because (laughs) we had to add the last part. Lawyers. Uh, (laughs) We're targeting 12 states over the next two years, and we're starting right here in Virginia because Virginia's entire legislature is up for re-election this November. And Democrats have a shot at winning a majority and making sure that the state doesn't have a bunch of jacked-up districts that purposely try to swing the election to one party. So go to votesaveamerica.com slash donate and you can help fix Virginia in just a few months. Thank you to our brand new married couple, Jeremy and Marissa. They've won the game. And that's, hey Virginia, our eyes are down here in local politics where a bunch of right-wing goons are going to gerrymander the fuck out of your state if you don't show up. Thank you to Congresswoman Frula Diapal. Thank you to Goldie Taylor. And thank you, D.C., Virginia, Maryland, for coming out. See you soon.